Right, can we turn over to 1 Peter, which I'm going to be preaching from. 1 Peter, page 1203. 1203. Now this is a letter, a short letter, written by Peter, the friend of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus, in fact the lead disciple of Jesus, um, who is writing, uh, not particularly to a Jewish audience, I don't think, I think it was to some Jews, but it was basically to, uh, to Christians all over the Roman Empire. Um, and uh, he's aware, and we're not going to read the whole letter, we're only going to read a few verses from it, He's aware that there is persecutions happening and ones, terrible ones that will be happening in the future. We know that uh, Peter himself perished in the, under one of those persecutions under, under the Emperor Nero, who was a half-mad megalomaniac who uh, had a lot of people murdered, but Peter in particular had his, had his head chopped off um, at the height of this persecution, according to tradition. Um, and or, and or he may have been crucified upside down. We're not quite sure necessarily. It may, it may have been the, the, cruci- the crucifixion upside down, which is the, is the correct story. But either way, uh, he's writing in the midst of what we might call a, an existential crisis for the church. And, and he has some, uh, some words for them, uh, firstly of, 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 uh, of assurance, but then he, he um, calls upon them to be prepared for what's to happen. So I want to read from verse 3 onwards. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Inheritance being something that you, you, you get from a, a person who's died. Well, Jesus died, but he, he also rose from the dead. But his inheritance, he leaves his people, is eternal life and life in glory. A wonderful, marvelous life that continues forever. And uh, he goes on to say, verse uh, 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, he's not saying we're guarded from persecution. No, persecution is going to happen. But our souls are guarded by the power of God. Because Jesus died for us and we put our faith in him, we are guarded through all the trials and problems of life. And, we'll be, and we will be uh, uh, guarded for heaven. In this you rejoice, though for, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been Grieved by various trials, even up to now, they've uh, they've had persecutions. So that the test, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter is is uh, rejoicing over the fact that that these believers, people he wouldn't necessarily know by by name or by face, but they have come to believe and have already started the life of heaven within their own soul. That the joy and peace of being a Christian is is a taste 
of the incredible glories to come in the next life. And he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, meaning the Old Testament prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. What he's saying is this, is that the prophets who gave a detailed, in some cases, like Isaiah, a detailed account of the career of Jesus Christ, who lived six or seven hundred years before, uh, and many of the other prophets who indicated uh, certain truths about the, the great king of the Jews that was to come, they realized that actually this was for, for later generations. Their prophesying was not going to happen in their lifetime. But it was actually going to be disclosed to later generations and the full blessings would come out in a later generation. And Peter is saying, well now, now we are the people who are receiving these wonderful blessings who, uh, uh, who were announced through the prophets. Uh, so they were, uh, at the top of the page, they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now here's the, what I, the verse I want to look at tonight. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's uh, now uh, look into uh, this passage. So I, I'm now going to uh, pray and ask the, the Lord to, to have a word for each one of us. Oh, Father in heaven, without the light that comes from the Holy Spirit of God, Lord, we will not, we will not learn things that can change our lives. Oh, Father, we pray, Lord, that uh, you will have some things... Uh, that, that come out of this sermon which will change our lives give us faith Lord give us hope give us clear minds we pray in Jesus' name Amen uh, now you may notice that the, the title I've given to this uh, talk is the mobilising of the mind now you might say Whoa, the mobilising of the mind that sounds a bit over the top. What, 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 am I, what am I talking about? Well, what, what does mobilizing mean? It means to assemble and make ready for war, actually. In, in English history, we have this incredible uh, mobilization that happened in England, in Germany, and in fact, all of the states uh, in 1914, getting ready for war and getting to the point where they literally were on tiptoe. And in fact, once the mobilization started, the war just happened. It originally was supposed to be preparing for war, but actually the mobilization actually got to the point where the army started to move into certain areas and war became inevitable. You see, mobilization is, is to assemble, to make ready for duty. It's a word that we could use, preparing a group of people so they're ready to act at a moment's notice. That's what mobilization is about. Now, why am I saying mobilizing the, the mobilization of the mind? Well, Peter says, firstly, in this verse, he says, prepare your minds for action. Now, what, is, what does he mean, preparing your minds for action? Well, I've explained already that the background uh, to this situation is that 
there's an onslaught that started in a minor way in various provinces of the Roman Empire uh, caused by Roman governors, individual Roman governors uh, making trouble for Christians and in some, some cases religious groups making trouble for, for Christians. But Peter, Peter was aware that there was going to be a great onslaught upon the church and Paul himself predicted such an onslaught. Um, and people had to have their minds ready for action. There needed to be a complete shake-up uh, of the minds of some Christians. Now, I want to, actually, before talking about the, the consequences for followers of Jesus uh, Christ, uh, let's think about this in reference to a person who isn't yet a believer, isn't yet a disciple of Jesus Christ. What do we, what do we mean by mobilizing the mind of a non-Christian? Well, the answer is this. Jesus said this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the word repent means revolutionize your mind, change your mind, have a totally different view of your life, this universe, and the world, and and where you're going to live, and how you're going to live. Jesus didn't come along and send people to sleep in their sermons, which maybe I sometimes do. He came along and he he called for a great shake-up of people's lives. Repent! And of course, he then went on to talk about believe, trust the gospel, trust the good news that God loves sinners and is prepared to accept anybody uh, into the kingdom. But in accepting them into the kingdom, they will be changed. And the darkness and the evil and the sins that they've been living in goes. And the light and love of God rules in our heart. And uh, basically, I just want to you know, point out that why should a non-Christian or a non-believer shake up their minds and, and you know, mobilize themselves in such a way? Well, because firstly, Christianity is true. There is a God. It's also true that human beings are in a, have been and continue to be in a terrible state. Um, every generation, there appears to be war after war after war. Crime. Uh, going back into the history of Britain, in Victorian times it was believed, and that's about 100 years ago, it was believed that with the advance of, of science, with mass education, with um, the development of, of human institutions, people would get better and better, and crime would cease to exist. Wars would eventually be, uh, wouldn't find their place on, on the planet, and we would have a paradise upon Earth. Did it happen? No. <laughs> and it, no, it looks no more likely to happen that, than it did really in the, in the middle of the 19th century, apart from people who had actually deceived themselves into believing a, a fairy tale. Human beings need a change inside. Not just education, not just scientific developments, not just political developments. Um, there was a, you know, in the, in, in the time before the, uh, 12 years before the American Civil War, um, a bill was passed which, um, uh, by, the, by, the, by the government which made Kansas a free state. Uh, or a slave state, which is a very funny uh, situation to be in. They basically said that um, the the Kansas-Nebraska bill said that Kansas could become whatever state they choose to become, depending on how the people of Kansas voted. Okay, what happened then was a massive mobilization of people who were anti-slavery 
to get into Kansas. And uh, many of these political immigrants uh, uh, actually were committed to, to violence. And uh, one, of the, one of the guys who supported these political immigrants who were, who were prepared to use violence to get their way um, was a famous uh, abolitionist, uh, Henry Ward Beecher, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a really, a, a really touching, a touching book. Now, uh, and there was lots of very good things about uh, uh, Henry Ward Beecher. And, of course, the abolition of slavery had been, had been accomplished in Britain by peaceful means, of course, uh, 60 years before this. But one of the things that Beecher said, which I think was very, very, uh, very, very misleading, he said this, look, I'm paying for 25 rifles for these people. Uh, I would like all of my audience, he had a massive great big church, if... For every 25 rifles I buy, can someone buy another 25? And so building up a big arsenal of rifles. And he said this. He says, There was more moral persuasion in one rifle than in a hundred Bibles. There was more ways of changing people in one rifle than in a hundred Bibles. And in fact, uh, from then on, the rifles that went to Kansas were called, were called Beecher's Bibles. Now, you know, the thing is this. Undoubtedly, uh, the, the, the free, freeing of the slaves in America was really absolute uh, necessity. And uh, um, most of us, uh, like C.H. Spurgeon, would have supported uh, the, the Unionist side in the Civil War. But he said a thing that's wrong. And it can be shown in the fact that although the Civil War was won by the forces of justice, if you like... 100, 150 years ago, however long it is now, um, the thing is, racial prejudice still exists amongst millions of people in the States. You can't change the heart just by a rifle, just by the winning of a war, just by uh, the, mere, the mere changing of political structures. The heart gets changed when people have a spiritual revolution inside. And that's really why it's so important for us to understand that, you know, you can't expect change in your life until you allow God to save you. You see, the Bible says this, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, you may know that uh, in Paris there is a, a, a meter-long piece of metal. It's, it's kept in the, under, I think, carefully controlled temperature conditions. Now, this meter-long um, piece of metal is the standard by which all meters have ever been measured in the whole of the world, you know, supposedly. Um, the metric system, I think, goes back to Napoleonic times. But this, this meter-long metal bar is what measures a meter. That is the measure by which you, you, you have the standard. That's a meter. The Bible says God has a standard of holiness by which we will enter heaven. And if we don't match up to that standard of holiness, we cannot enter heaven. And the Bible says, all of us have sinned. And all of us have fallen short of that measurement of goodness, holiness, and love. And because we don't measure up to the standards of heaven, when we die, we will not go to heaven. We will be rejected into the outer darkness that Jesus talked about. Where people will weep and gnash their, mash their teeth. Where, where, in other words, a picture of absolute misery under 
the wrath of God. Now, the thing is this. Jesus came into this world to deliver us from this. You know, Jesus came to save us. Now, how could he save us? Well, the answer is this. He was able to pay the price for your sins. You've built up a debt again, uh, uh, before God of all of the times that you've broken his laws, gone without him, wandered without him. And above all, you've left Jesus out of your life. All of us have until we receive him. But Jesus came into this world out of love and pity for us. The mess we've been in, the mess we've, you know, we, we've created in our lives. He loves and still loves uh, everyone uh, who is prepared to, to come to him. He loves those who are sinners, who know their, need of, know their need of God and come to him. And the basic thing is this. You, you can be saved by him. And I just want to finish this bit about why it's important to get your mind mobilized and, and to shake up your mind and, and, and have your life truly shaken up by Jesus. is because he died to save, to save you. In New York, there's a uh, cemetery, called, I believe, called the Greenwood Cemetery. And there, in there, there's a, an old and faded statue of, uh, from the 1840s of a, a fireman who died uh, in the 1840s. I mean, what happened was uh, there was a large building with many floors uh, that was completely burning up. And a woman dashed out of the building and came to the fireman and came up to one farm and said, my child is in that building. And she, and, and she was about to rush back in it, into the building to get, to get the baby. And the farmer said, you, you can't get your child. He then went in himself into this building, I think it was on the third or fourth floor, and uh, he, he found the baby where she described it. Um, but then, having got into the room, the floor outside that room he was in completely crashed to the ground, and massive wa- waves of flames were, were, were surrounding him. And so, and I said, this, is a tr- this is a true story. Because he knew roughly the place where the, ba- where, where the other firemen were waiting, I don't know whether they already had something out to catch people, but anyway, he just threw the baby through the flames. And the baby was, <laughs> did actually was caught by someone, someone beneath. He died. Now, he died in the place of the baby. Now, imagine that, you know, in the 1870s, 1880s, you know, the baby grew up to be a, a young woman of 30 or 40, maybe a young man of 30 or 40, I think it was a girl, but whoever, and you, ca- you came to that statue of this, uh, this fireman who 30 years before had saved your life. Wouldn't you feel gratitude to him? Wouldn't you, oh, you know, wouldn't you want to express your gratitude? Now the Bible tells us that Jesus is not a faded statue. He's a, the, living, the living son of God. And though we can't see him, he is at the center of the whole, this whole universe we live in. Now tonight, if you know that you, are, you need forgiveness of your sins, you come to him and you thank him that he bore the flames, bore the judgment, so that you could be free. And, and thank him for that. And allow your life to be totally shaken up by him. Your mind, firstly, to be shaken up by him. So please do that. Do, do pray, uh, uh, even as I'm, I'm speaking. But I want to move on now, because the verse... 
that we're looking at is really to do uh, with believers primarily. And uh, remind you again, he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, Therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, I just want to, to, to notice uh, two things. That uh, Peter wanted them to have their minds prepared and to be, and to be sober-minded, setting their hearts fully on the grace that we brought to them. Firstly, because of the light of persecution. But if you look um, further down, you'll see that uh, he does talk about, uh, verse 14, that they needed to be obedient children. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, he knew that many Christians, before they become Christians, mess up their lives. Some of them, you know, get addicted to drink or drugs or what have you. They live a, a life of, of wastage and, and, and they have lots of bad habits. Their lives need to be shaken up. They need to be mobilized to become a holy person, an obedient person. It says in verse 16 that um, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then we also need to be full of love. Full of love. So often religious people are, are often full of pride. And full of hatred of those who aren't of their religion. And are cold. But what does Peter say? Verse 22, later on in the passage. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again. Not of perishable seed but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. And this love manifested itself in love for their fellow believers, but we know from Jesus' other teaching, it manifested itself in a love for all people, including your enemies. And uh, that's what we need to, to be, become like. And we're told that, we, firstly, we need to have our minds prepared for action. Now, the actual words that, that uh, Peter uses is, um, gird up your loins. <laughs> now, you might say, well, what does that mean? Actually, it's got a very specific meaning. It, as you know, um, Jewish people in those days wore long robes, Jewish men, so, as well as women. Uh, today, the only equivalent for us is like a, a, a bathroom robe or a, a sleeping, uh, you know, a, a, what do you call it, a sleeping gown or whatever it's called. A great long robe. And it was impossible with that. Uh, that thing to, to run properly and in order to get ready to fight you had to kind of sh get the, the, the bits of the robe and tuck them into your belt all the way around gird up those the, 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 to make it yourself ready to fight and that became a, uh, an expression used for get mentally prepared fully focused, fully ready just like a soldier gets the adrenaline going Avoiding all other distractions, getting ready for the fight. And Peter's saying, well, that's the only way a Christian can really live in a world that, that we live in. We need to have our, a mind that is ready for action. Now, well, a mind? Well, yeah, maybe we might, maybe we might need to do a bit of work on our bodies. But what do you mean get our mind ready for action? Well, 
there's a number of reasons. Because our mind controls so much of our lives. We're not here talking about just our intellect. I mean, people think of, of uh, our mind, and then we think of very highly intelligent people with massive IQs, scientists, logicians, all this sort of thing. But that's not what Peter is talking about. Peter's talking about that part of our mental facility that basically controls our heart and our behavior. And uh, if, we, if we are kind of like loose living and we're not really bothered about how we live, you know, we're, we're like a, a person with flapping robes. We're never in a position where we can run anywhere or get involved in a fight. Now, so it is, the person who's not got a mind prepared for, for action is not alert to spiritual realities. Not alert to the fact that, well, there's not only a God in heaven, but there's a devil who is uh, inspiring evil within human hearts. We fail to recognize temptations when they come along. Reading newspapers, watching TV, talking to friends. Temptations to do evil. We're not watching out. We just fall into temptations. You know, we, 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 there's all kinds of things flowing through. Our, our minds aren't tightly, uh, tightly kept under the word of God, but rather just like loose flowing robes, temptations to getting angry, lustful, anxious, worried. All these things are, are creating within us minds that really are unfit for the task of becoming a holy, loving person. We fail to assess situations from a Christian point of view. We drive our cars like we're non-Christians. We, um, we get involved with, uh, with quarrels at work with people like we're non-Christians. The thing is this, we need to understand that our minds are so important for the, for the way that we behave. How can we become holy if our minds are really out, out, without any control? We're so easily distracted. We never get around to praying, you know, oh yeah, I'm going to pray at night, and then we fall asleep in our bed because we're, you know, we're distracted because we've turned on the TV and watched that for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, and then we finally go to bed without praying. Um, in our house, uh, of course, uh, Ali and I have our, our grandkids that uh, you know, stay for, for a few hours every day, and we do allow them to watch some TV, but we ha- there's always a problem with the remote control. Because the remote control in the hand of the youngest, uh, uh, the youngest grandkid means all he ever wants for hours on end is to watch one particular program endlessly, endlessly, endless, endlessly. And it's amusing in one sense. He always want, wants to watch the same program over and over and over again. But of course, in the hands of a child, a remote control, you know, just becomes, um, you know, a, a little toy watching a TV program but and, and he'll click 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 but the problem is is that our brains are often like remote controls which click from one channel to another or one part in the film to another part and then back again and then back again click 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 we spend vast amounts of time actually in our thought life surfing if you like uh, the internet of our minds, spending vast amounts of time on every old thoughts and use items. We're reading newspapers, we're reading social, watching social media, and watching movies, and everything. And our minds, far from being prepared for action, for being alive to the living God, for worship, for prayer, for walking with Christ, well, 
we keep clicking the, the God channel off. You know, the God channel is something that we're not on that often in our brains. Because we're not prepared for action. We're often pre-programmed, actually, by our, our past. Uh, some of you may have read the book. I read the book many, many years ago, and then there's a film made of it, uh, a thriller called The Manchurian Candidate, in which uh, basically a man uh, who was captured by, uh, uh, during the Korean War by commun- communist troops and then was brainwashed and was programmed such that when a certain phrase was heard, he would, he would uh, go forth to assassinate the, the person that he'd you know, been called to assassinate. Tick, and then he does something, uh, something incredible, you know, incredibly different from what you'd expected. Now, the, there is a battle for the mind going on in our society, and we're often, as Christians, and I include myself in this, oh, too lazy-minded to really do anything about it. Uh, you know, in fact, even you know, social media and the TV uh, kind of makes us uh, kind of lazy, doesn't really stimulate our brain so much as simply entertain us and encourages mental dullness. And the result is we can have all kinds of thoughts from the old life which are hammering about in our brain or thoughts are suggested constantly by these other things. And the result is we're programmed and we can so easily switch into being a person that is not filled with holiness but unholiness. This is not filled with love, but with bitterness and, and hatred. You see, the thing is this. Our minds need to, be, need to be grounded in reality. And the reality is that God intended us to be filled with love and filled with holiness. A, uh, a person that has common sense makes sensible decisions based on the real world. A person with common sense, it doesn't matter how, how high your IQ is, Uh, But if you've got common sense, you don't sleepwalk into disasters. Peter says this, that prepare your minds for action. Prepare for what's going to be happening, both in the world when you're going to be persecuted, but also in a world in which you're meant to be holy. He also says, and being sober-minded... Now, I mentioned already that this was a letter written to Christians who perhaps were tortured, imprisoned, or executed. And they needed to sober up, to think about um, you know, what the essentials of their Christian life was about. To be sober is the opposite of being intoxicated. Now, we can actually find ourselves as Christians in a, sometimes in a state of mental intoxication. And what do I mean? Well, let's take the thing about the alternation between um, elation and depression. Um, we know that there is a, a mental illness you know, called bipolar disorder where um, those who have it you know, really uh, suffer with the, with the problem that uh, their, their, their brain seems to, to, to go from, you know, from a season of being highly elated, joyful, active, hyperactive... And then followed by a season of depression and sadness and melancholy and doing very little. And they're caught in that constantly. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is uh, the norm for people, because it isn't. But it is also true that we as Christians can sometimes have an intoxication um, 
a religious intoxication, if you like, on some occasions. Or sometimes it might be depression. Sometimes you find believers who go through a time when they start thinking about their past. And they then start thinking, oh, this happened and that happened and their sins and their failures. And it's like someone going in, you know, you, you hear these rich people have wine cellars in which they have all these incredibly expensive vintage wines. And, it, and it's sometimes like people go, you know, into the wine cellar of, of their sins or their past tragedies or their past sadnesses and oh 2007 oh that's a fine brew and then spend minutes sometimes a long time going through that depressive and then they go through their other depression and then they go through their other sequence and added with the sadnesses they've got in their own life at the moment they can be overcome by sorrow Jesus actually said to his disciples to, you know, to beware that they would be overwhelmed with sorrow that when he was going. He tried, to, he tried to give them a reason for not being overwhelmed with sorrow. We need to make sure that we are not caught up. Our minds don't get caught up at crucial points in our life by mental intoxications. I have mentioned this before, but I think it's very salutary uh, you know, warning uh, of Christian that I knew that was a, um, a, a, a church leader who believed in the power of prayer and taught his congregation God always answered prayer. Henry referred to that, uh, that, that idea this morning. God would always heal. And he had very bad cancer, but he told his congregation, I am not going to die. I am not going to die because God is, is going to heal me and God has already given me the promise. I'm going to be healed. We've had a prophecy. And various other people made prophecies. And he, he was on his deathbed for about, I think, th- three months or something. And his whole congregation prayed and fasted. No, he's not going to die. God is going to heal. It's going to be. But he did die. Now, that intoxicated religious mind of believing uh, uh, basically a complete fantasy that, you know, that, uh, you know, you can't possibly die if you're, if you're a Christian and everybody's prayed for you. What happened? The church broke up. This mental intoxication actually meant that the whole church just broke up into little pieces. And the man I met who told me the story had become a Muslim. Obviously, he wasn't a Christian in the first place. But the point is, this whole group of people got their minds kind of so so worked up. And they, they moved away from the essence of what is being a Christian. Uh, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. And be holy. And be filled with love for people. You've already experienced joy. Carry on in that, in that mode, Peter's saying. He's not talking about our minds being taken over by, by some fantasy that grows bigger and bigger. In the Welsh Revival, 1904 Welsh Revival, there were, there were numbers of wonderful things happening, most incredible things happened in Wales to whole communities. And thousands upon thousands of people were converted and they were all, they, they gathered to, some, some communities gathered together and they, they would be singing the praises of God for two, three hours, four hours. And uh, essentially, at, at one point in the revival, and I read this by one of the leaders of the revival, who was a more sober-minded man, uh, who didn't agree with what this other, um, uh, this other division, uh, uh, group within the revival were doing. He tells that 
eventually they instructed their leaders, we don't want any more preaching. We don't want any more, any, any more coming into our mind. We just want to be singing the praises of God. And they'd have three or four hours uh, or, or longer of, of basically singing and a bit of praying. And that will be it. And guess what? The revival sputtered out. Keep sober-minded means that we keep a check on emotions, ideas, doctrines, anything that distracts us from the pure and true word of God. Keep sober-minded is incredibly important. And what, why are we to be sober-minded and why are we uh, to prepare our minds for action? It's to set our hope. What on? Look at uh, verse uh, the last bit of verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because that is the center to our, to our lives. Funnily enough, this is exactly what Henry, what Henry uh, himself had as one of his points in, this, in his service this morning. I actually wrote down uh, his, um, his words when he said it. That's exactly what... Uh, what um, uh, what, what uh, I um, was talking about. I've actually lost the quote. I wrote it down. I can't find it now. But it, uh, you may remember that Henry was talking this morning having, of having greater and more wonderful experiences of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that how uh, Paul um, found that grace, grace of God was, was, uh, was so much more important than just having a healing. My grace is sufficient for you. And uh, this is what Peter's saying too. That we need to understand that our lives consist in knowing Jesus better. In knowing more of his love. And therefore being able to live lives of holiness and lives of love. Now, you might say, well hang on, but isn't Peter saying, set you hopefully on the grace that will be brought up to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, at the second coming. So isn't he kind of saying, set your hope on something future, the grace that is coming in the future, rather than talking about grace that is within you, is with you in the present? Well, I don't think so. And I, I think for, for this reason. Um, the sun in winter... Uh, as you may know, is a bit further away than the sun at summer, during the summer. During, due to the rotation of the Earth and uh, uh, the, the, the actual, also the orbit of planet Earth, um, the, the sun in, in winter is, is further away. And so, obviously, in winters can be quite cool. Even when the sun is shining on a winter's day, blue sky can still be very cold, although we're receiving the, the sun's rays. But then when the, when the seasons change, and we have like we did two days ago on a blue sky and uh, warm air and the sun beating down and we have the full glory and power and heat coming from the sun. Now this is, this is true of the grace of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes again, the full majesty of his grace and love, his gifts to us, his personal presence will shine down upon us in a marvelous glory. Uh, for which, I guess, at the moment, we, you know, we, we, we can imagine it, but we can't fully uh, have the full impression of it. But still, the, 
the grace that we rejoice in today, we might call it the winter time, uh, it's still, we're still experiencing the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The fact there's going to be a time coming when that grace is going to be so much more real and vivid and material. A new heavens and a new earth. And all of these wonderful, wonderful, um, these wonderful things happening doesn't detract from the fact that in the present, you as a believer have the Son of God has already risen in your souls. Uh, Peter talks about this, uh, about um, the morning star is already risen. It started to rise in your heart, starting to shine in your heart. Other parts of scripture talk about, in Malachi, you know, the, the, the sun shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, every single one of us who have trusted in Christ are now in an individual relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he is already shining in our hearts now, the present. And if we need to fix our eyes, fix our hope on this grace that is yet to be revealed in even more glory but also fix our hearts on him to experience this grace in our lives today. That's what Paul says in his letters, not just Peter. Paul says, fix your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. To experience more of the, of the, of the transforming power of uh, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Set Christ, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, to finish, I just want to say this. Peter had talked about the angels uh, in that passage, which I read earlier. The angels. And uh, also, uh, he, he, he also talked about the prophets desiring to look into uh, what this salvation was about. And another scripture talks about the angels... Um, you know, uh, we're, we're trying to look into the mysteries of salvation. Now, if the prophets were so keen to look into um, uh, where is Christ coming? What is what is these truths about him? What, these glorious me- messages we find in Isaiah of the grace and kindness of God in the servant of God, then how much more should we be constantly wanting to look into the mysteries of salvation? Now, that's a totally different way of approaching life than just letting our minds be, you know, thoughts come in, thoughts go out, no control, no discipline, them, just letting them roll and so on. We wake up in the middle of the night, we can't get to sleep, so we don't think that actually, well, that's an opportunity to focus on the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And even if we can't maintain that for, for that long necessarily, at least... We should be doing this. We should be eagerly looking, uh, seeking to look into the mysteries of our salvation. Not letting loose vagabond thoughts come in and take over, mental squatters in our, in our, in our mind. But seek that the Holy Spirit will enable us through verses of scripture, through the knowledge of Jesus, to actually have an ongoing relationship with him. I mean, Jesus said this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you'll bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And the word of God dwelling in us, bearing fruit in us, is partly, I think, what is meant by uh, fixing, fixing uh, 
or setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we do thank you that those of us who are children, the children of God, who are sinners but who have received forgiveness and salvation, Lord, we do have a link, a Lord, an absolutely uh, diamond-hard link with Jesus Christ. We, Lord, have been uh, connected to him, and we are guarded for a salvation that is, is, will... uh, will be revealed. And we thank you, Lord, that it is possible for our minds uh, to be set upon not just this world, but set on the eternal world of Christ. And we can enjoy fellowship with him as we live in this world. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.